This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter of the series, Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads. So far, I've detailed cases where parents have killed their children in order to start a new life, without the burden of their children. But another motivation for child murder is sometimes revenge. In this case, a father, long divorced from his child's mother, feels he no longer has control over when or if he will be able to see his son, and plans the ultimate revenge. This is Chapter 4, Charles Rothenberg. If you're like me, you're always looking for more fascinating true crime cases. I recently began listening to the podcast, Suspect Convictions, that I found to be very intriguing. I asked the host, Scott Reeder, to tell me how he got involved with this case and to summarize his new podcast for my listeners. 27 years ago, I was the night police reporter for the um, Quad City Times in Davenport, Iowa, and I got dispatched to a small fire at a school playground. And I got there at the same time as the first police officer. And the two of us walked over across the playground to where some tall grass was. And we could see smoke rising out of the um, grass. And when, we got, when I got to the fire and I was standing about two feet from it, I looked down. And instead of being a trash fire, it was a nine-year-old girl that had been doused with gasoline and set on fire. The first thing that came to my mind is, who would do something like this? About a week after the child was found, her name was Jennifer Lewis. She was a little girl that had grown up in incredibly tragic circumstances. Her parents were selling drugs. The man who was supplying drugs to the family was a guy named Stanley Liggins. had just been released from prison in Mississippi, where he'd served seven years for armed robbery. They arrested him on really, frankly, very little evidence. I know that there's been some twists and turns in this case as far as what's happened with the conviction. So that, I think, is another whole part of the story. So can you tell us a little about, bit sure. about that? This is going to be his third trial. It starts up in, on May 22nd. The first trial, um, was the conviction was thrown out because it came out in the trial that the guy, that the suspect had been dealing drugs. And they, um, they said that was prejudicial, and they threw out the conviction. The second trial, they had a change of venue. They moved it to a different community in Iowa, uh, a community that had had a lot of problems with white supremacist burning crosses, a community known as Dubuque, which is probably the most ethnically homogenous community in uh, one of the most ethnically homogenous states in the Union. But they also found that more than 70 police reports had been withheld from the defense. And some of the reports could be argued that they pointed away from Stanley Liggins, the defendant, at committing the crime. But then there was another twist here. The other witness they had in the case was a cellmate of Stanley Liggins, and he testified in, during the first and second trials that Stanley Liggins had admitted to committing the crime to him. This guy is a career criminal. He's served more than 25 years in prison for a variety of offenses. We got... One witness that says the only reason he testified is because the police threatened to um, charge him as accessory to murder if he, unless he did. 
The other witness is somebody who got paid 87 times by the police as an informant, and her, her informant status was hidden from the defense and probably from the prosecution. So there's some real big question marks going on here. So I've interviewed, I would guess, well over 100 people involved in the case. And I, you have a lot of different moving parts here. And then you look at the, the, the suspect. You know, this guy is not a real sympathetic character. He's a bad man. I'll be the first to tell you that. I mean, he, he served seven years for armed robbery. He uh, stabbed a man to death in prison while he was in prison. So he's not a nice person at all. But real question marks as to whether he committed this crime or he didn't commit this crime. So we got that trial coming up. You asked me how on earth did I get into doing a podcast? Mm -hmm. Well, originally I was writing a book about the case. I was on a long car ride with my wife. I said, you know, I've never been much into podcasts, but why don't we listen to this podcast called Serial? Everybody says it's supposed to be so fantastic and we're listening to it. And I just found that the whole case just riveting as I was listening to it. So the next day, I picked up the phone and I called up a friend um, who was at a, a NPR station. And I said, hey, I'd like to pitch going into partnership with you guys and producing a podcast looking at, at the, uh, the murder of Jennifer Lewis. Within a week, we had an agreement and we began producing episodes. We launched in January. We have 14 episodes out right now. It's called Suspect Convictions. We're going to enter in our second season here. And in the second season, we enter into a new trial. In advance of it, we're going to do a recap of the first season. We're going to produce every day a episode during the trial, looking at the testimony. But we're also going to go out, and we have done all this reporting ahead of time with interviewing maybe over 100 people involved. And we're going to in intersperse their, their thoughts and the testimony and explain it each day of the trial. You're going to be getting the information at the same time we are. We don't know how the story is going to end. It's just an incredible case. It sounds like you have a little bit of everything in this case. Number one, you have this true crime case of this murder of this poor nine-year-old child. Then you have the background stories of all of the people from the suspect to the family to the witnesses. Then you've got the possible misconduct in the case where you're going to look now at, has this been proven beyond a reasonable doubt? And obviously not, because he's now on his third trial. And then you have whole courtroom drama, what's going to happen next. So it's also a mystery wrapped up in the story. What's going to happen next? We don't know. And you're unfolding it in real time. I'm going to be listening, and I encourage my listeners to do the same. If you haven't started listening to Suspect Convictions, get caught up. There's some things coming out in the next few weeks that you're going to be able to listen to in real time. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks to Scott Reeder from Suspect Convictions for telling us about the podcast and getting us intrigued for what's coming up. Monday, February 28th, 1983. Marie Rothenberg just had a strange feeling all weekend. She couldn't put a finger on it, except that her ex-husband was not always the most responsible person. That she knew. But it was more than just that, she thought. Why wasn't he answering the phone? She knew he might just be acting like a jerk. Their three-year marriage had ended in divorce, and if it wasn't for their six-year-old son, David, she'd be happy enough never to see him again. 
Marie had met Charles Rothenberg when she was just 20 years old. She had fallen for him quickly, in large part, she thought, because he came from a dysfunctional family like she had. Marie had been one of eight kids born to an alcoholic mother. Her mother was abusive to her children, and as a result, Marie and her siblings were taken away from her and sent to live with their father, who was remarried. Her stepmother, Marie says, invented the word wicked. Charles told her his mother had been a prostitute, and he was raised in an orphanage in the Bronx. He'd never known a family of his own. Marie wanted to get married and create a loving family, like the family she'd never had. She felt that together, she and Charles could create a happy home. But it wasn't long after she married Charles Rothenberg that Marie realized her mistake. He became abusive towards her and started cheating on her with other women. Marie was soon pregnant, and that seemed to give Charles an excuse to go out without her and meet other women. But after their son David was born, something changed, although not quite for the better. Charles became obsessed with his baby boy. Marie no longer mattered. David was the only person he cared about. Once, when the baby began crying, her husband pushed her, knocking her to the floor. He then began kicking her and told her if she ever made his baby cry again, he'd kill her. Marie was terrified to stay with Charles and equally afraid to leave him. Fortunately for her, Charles was arrested for forgery and sent to jail. Charles had a criminal history, mostly for theft and robbery. His most serious offense had been for armed robbery. He was convicted of check forgery after Davy was born and sent to prison. He was incarcerated for two years. During that time, Marie divorced him. When he was released, his first thought was to see David. Marie hadn't taken the toddler to the prison to visit his father. She felt he was too young and it would be too confusing for him. Charles was angry that he'd missed out on two years of seeing his son. In his mind, it was Marie's fault he'd been separated from him. Now, he set about making it up to him. Marie knew that Charles loved David, almost obsessively so. He indulged him, showering him with gifts and walking him to school every day. Marie and Charles only lived a few blocks apart from each other in New York. Marie allowed Charles to see David almost any time he wanted to. She figured that would keep him from causing problems, and she knew that Charles loved his son, and Davy loved him in return. Life could sometimes be stressful for Marie. She had to work full-time to support herself and David. Charles had taken the jobs he could get, as a cab driver and then as a waiter. He offered what child support he could, but it wasn't much. Marie also had to be the primary parent and create rules and boundaries for David. David was a headstrong child. He took after his mother, she knew, and sometimes they would have a battle of wills. Charles was not a disciplinarian. He would much rather be David's playmate and would give in to his wants and demands. Marie had to provide the structure, and sometimes it was exhausting. Davy was now getting older, and his school schedule had to be adhered to. When Charles asked Marie if he could have Davy stay with him for a week, she at first said no. Davy and his father spent time together every week. He would see him after school. But Davy always slept at home, so Marie could make sure he got to bed on time and was ready for school in the morning. Charles persuaded her by telling her he was leaving his job at Lou Chow's restaurant to start a new job at a car service in Brooklyn. He said he wouldn't be able to spend as much time with David after that, since he'd been working nights and weekends. He just wanted David to stay with him this last week before he began the new job. They would be just a few blocks away at Charles's apartment, and he'd make sure David got to school. 
On the weekend, he said he planned to take David to a resort in the Catskills. Marie was happy to hear about the new job. The less she had to deal with Charles, the better, she thought. And it would be nice to have a few days off from mom duty, to spend alone with her boyfriend, John. Marie was dating John Cirillo, a police officer. With his cop schedule and her full-time job and David, they had precious little time together. So Marie agreed, making Charles promise to get David to school every day and make sure he did his homework. He agreed. He arrived on Wednesday night to pick up David for a week. He was dressed in new clothes, and he looked excited, if somewhat hurried. David was excited as well to spend time with his father. But the whole weekend had gone by without hearing from them, and Marie was beginning to panic. John tried to assure her that David was fine. He often spent time with his dad, and Charles was a good and loving father to David. Still, Marie couldn't shake the nagging feeling that something was wrong. Call it a mother's intuition, she thought, but she needed to make sure. Monday night, she could no longer wait for Charles to finally decide to return her calls. She called the parent of a boy who was in David's class. It was late, and she apologized, but she requested that the mother ask her son if David had been in school that day. After a few minutes, the woman came back on the phone and told her that David had been absent that day. Marie's heart sunk. Could the boy remember if David had been in school on Thursday or Friday? He said he didn't think he'd been there on Friday, but he couldn't remember. Now, frantic, she called John and told him she thought David's father had kidnapped him. He told her to call Charles's employer and find out if they'd seen him. Marie called Lou Chow's, where he'd worked for the past eight months. She spoke to the manager, who told her he was looking for him too. Charles was suspected of having embezzled money from his employer. He had been fired, and the manager believed he had returned when the restaurant was closed and vandalized the place. There was a warrant out for his arrest. Now Marie was beyond panicked. Her ex-husband had not just taken David on a vacation. He was on the run from the law, probably hiding God knows where, and he had taken her six-year-old son with him. Now she went to Charles's apartment and begged the landlady to let her inside. She also called the police. While waiting for them to arrive, a neighbor came and told Marie she'd heard Charles screaming and yelling at David inside the apartment recently. She heard David crying for his mommy, and Charles became enraged and yelled at him to shut up. Marie was horrified. She never would have suspected Charles of behaving that way with his son. She felt duped and like the most irresponsible mother that ever lived. The landlady told her that Charles had been acting crazy, rushing around and throwing things in the dumpster last week. She saw him leaving with the suitcase on Thursday. She had not seen David with him. After he'd left, she'd looked in the dumpster. There were pictures of David torn to pieces. The landlady let Marie and the police into the apartment. They found a note Charles had taped inside the door that said he'd gone to upstate New York for a month. Inside the kitchen was another note addressed to the landlady. Here are your keys, it read. I will not be returning. Charles Rothenberg. The apartment was empty. Marie quickly drove to the police station to file a missing persons report. The police told Marie to keep her usual routine and wait for Charles to contact her. So Marie went to work the next day. The police were looking for David. There was nothing else she could think of to do. She'd gotten in contact with Charles's girlfriend. She told her that Charles had been acting strangely in the last few weeks. 
They had been out to dinner with David one evening, when Charles lost his temper after David began to whine. Charles pushed him, knocking him to the floor. He called him a fucking brat and told him he'd be sent home to his mother if he didn't shape up. Around noon, Marie's desk phone rang. Hello, Marie, Charles said. Marie immediately asked to speak to David. He told her she couldn't because David was asleep. Why is he asleep, she asked. It's almost lunchtime. It's the time diff, he began, and then stopped himself. He'd given himself away, and Marie immediately suspected that he was in California. He'd always promised to take David to Disney World, but there was no time difference between New York and Florida. Are you in California? Are you at Disneyland, she asked him. No, Marie, I'm not, he answered. I'm in upstate New York. We're at a farm where no one can find me. She knew he was lying. He still wouldn't let her talk to David. She became hysterical. He hung up on her. When he called back a few minutes later, Marie strained to hear anything that might tell her where they were. She could make out the unmistakable sounds of a video game in the background. She asked to speak to David. He said he couldn't come to the phone. I'm going to keep him for a while, he told her. Marie doesn't remember the rest of the conversation. She knew that she was losing it. She was crying, begging him to let her speak to her son and angrily demanding he bring him home. She doesn't remember threatening him, as Charles would later say. He'd say that Marie told him when she got David back, he would never see him again. She admits it's possible that she might have said it in her panicked state, but she doesn't remember doing so. Charles then hung up again. Before hanging up, he promised to call her back that night. He never did. She waited that night and all the next day, but no call came. Finally, on Thursday morning, two days after his last call, the phone rang. Marie picked it up, but it wasn't David or Charles. It was Western Union. Mrs. Rothenberg, I have a telegram for you. Marie's blood froze in her veins. Read it, she said. Dear Marie, she read, by the time you read this, I will have terminated my existence. You have caused me enough harm. I've gone through enough. Also be informed that your son has been in an accident and is in the University of California at Irvine Burn Center. The trip had begun so promising. On Wednesday night, February 23rd, Charles picked up David from Marie's. This would be a last hurrah. He was in trouble again, and he wanted, no, he needed to be with his son. He didn't know what would happen. He might go to jail, but he couldn't allow himself to be separated from his son again. So instead, he would go away and take David with him. David was his son, and no one could keep him from his boy. He packed their suitcases, telling David he was taking him somewhere that was a surprise. They would have a great time together. But you can't tell your mother, he instructed him. On Friday, David and Charles boarded a flight to California. David was excited. A limousine picked them up from the airport and drove them to a Holiday Inn in Buena Park, just a couple of miles from Disneyland. When they checked into the hotel, it was raining. Charles told David they'd get up in the morning and go to Disneyland. By then, for sure, the rain would have stopped. But the next day, it was still pouring. The rain would continue to fall all that weekend and into the next week. He tried to keep David happy, renting a car to drive to the beach, but the beach wasn't very fun in the rain. He purchased two passes to Wallbangers, a health club that had handball courts 
and a video game arcade. For the most part, they were stuck in the motel, and David was growing bored and whiny. Charles was at his wit's end. He'd always been able to give David what he wanted, and he always was a hero in David's eyes. Now, when he most wanted and needed to keep his boy close to him, his plans were falling apart. David was making noises about wanting to go home. He missed his mom. On Tuesday, he'd called Marie, and she began to yell at him, as always, he thought. She said she was calling the police and that he'd never see his son again. His son? How dare she say that? No one was going to take his son away from him. Later that day, he took David with him to a local hardware store, where he purchased a two-and-a-half-gallon container of kerosene. On Wednesday, Charles moved them from the Holiday Inn to the Travelodge in Buena Park. Charles backed his rental car into the space closest to their room. David was excited about the queen-sized waterbed. Later that night, when he got into bed, Charles gave David a sleeping pill to make sure he fell asleep quickly. A woman who was staying at the same motel looked out of her window just before midnight to see if the rain was still falling. She was on the second floor, and looking down and across the parking lot, she saw a white car backed up into the stall directly in front of room number 139. She later said she noticed it because the driver's side door was open and the engine was running. A moment later, she saw Charles come out of the open motel room door. He was carrying a large white jug. She saw him walk over to a trash barrel and place it inside. He then returned to the door of the motel room and bent over as if to pick something up. He stood up and closed the door and walked to the running white car. He slammed the car door and peeled out of the parking lot. The witness said he must have been going over 40 miles an hour. Just then, she heard a loud explosion, and the window of room 139 blew out. Flames shot out of the broken window, and she could hear screams coming from inside. People began running out of their rooms, alerted by the explosion. When they saw the flames and heard the screams, motel guests swung into action. One man began kicking in the door, and another grabbed a nearby chemical fire extinguisher and began to spray the fire. Three men, two who were never identified, risked their own lives to enter the room. They saw a small body lying on the floor at the foot of the bed, blackened by the flames. They dragged him out of the room. An ambulance arrived and rushed the burned child to the University of California, Irvine Hospital Burn Center. Later, it would be estimated that the fire reached over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. The television tube in the room exploded in the intense heat. All the furnishings in the room were burned away, and the carpet had melted. David had suffered third-degree burns over 90% of his body. He was rushed into intensive care. He was not expected to live through the night. Charles watched the fire from a phone booth across the street and saw the ambulance take his son away. Afterwards, he called and left the telegram for Marie. He drove down the street and spent the night at another hotel. He would later say he had planned to kill himself and his son at the same time but the witness at the hotel would prove this to be untrue. Apparently, he didn't have the nerve to kill himself afterwards either. He drove to San Francisco to hide out. He continued to call the hospital, and when they wouldn't give him any information, called the police to ask, how's my boy? A nationwide manhunt was conducted, and the police were able to trace one of his calls to San Francisco. Charles Rothenberg was arrested six days later and charged with attempted murder.
But little David Rothenberg did live. His doctors considered it a miracle. Marie was on the first plane to California, and at first she couldn't be sure that the bandaged figure in the bed was her son. By the time he'd reached the hospital, David was in a coma, and when he finally emerged, he could not see or talk. Every part of his body had been burned, and he would have many painful skin grafts and surgeries. It took over three months for David to be taken off of the critical list. Two months after that, he almost died during another surgery. He was in a coma, but once again, miraculously pulled through. Marie stayed by his side in the hospital for months to make sure nurses and doctors knew her son's name was David and he was a six-year-old boy. She taped a picture of him in happier days to his bed so that everyone could put a face to her son, who was so badly burned that he was unrecognizable. Nine months after the horrible night that his father had tried to end his life, David left the hospital. He still could not walk, but he could see and talk again. He still had pain and would undergo many more surgeries to reconstruct his face, but he was alive. Marie had to admit to David that his father had done this to him. When David asked why, his mother didn't have a good answer. Daddy is very sick, she told him. Marie and David returned to their home in Brooklyn. His schoolmates cheered when he returned. Due to all the media attention about what had happened to him, he had become a minor celebrity. But as time went on, things became harder. He was stared at wherever he went. His face was still badly disfigured. David, however, never felt sorry for himself and once told his mother, God gave me three chances to live. The first one was in your belly. The second was when I was saved and the third will be up in heaven. And I have to make these the best I can. Later, Marie and David would move permanently to Southern California so that David could continue the long process of plastic surgery with his original doctors. Marie became close to the Buena Park police lieutenant who'd led the investigation. They began dating, and in 1988, Marie married Lieutenant Richard Hofdahl. That same year, a made-for-television movie titled David was aired on ABC. It was based on a book written by Marie Rothenberg about her son. Bernadette Peters plays Marie Rothenberg, and David was played by seven-year-old Matthew Lawrence, the younger brother of Joey Lawrence. In 1988, David was a preteen and was living a fairly normal life for a boy his age in Southern California, going to school, riding a skateboard, and dreaming of becoming a pro skateboarder. He was adamant at that time that he never wanted to see his father again. After Charles Rothenberg was found hiding in a San Francisco YMCA, he was charged with attempted murder. He quickly confessed to his crime. He told police he had tried to kill his son because he decided, quote, if I can't have him, nobody can. He pled guilty to the charge and was sentenced before a judge. Because David had lived, the maximum sentence the judge could give him was 13 years for one count of attempted murder and two counts of arson that included great bodily injury. At his sentencing, Judge James Franks told Rothenberg, 13 years is not enough for what you did. Later, the judge would weep in his chambers at the unfairness of the sentence for all David Rothenberg had suffered. Rothenberg was sentenced to Soledad State Prison. He was housed in protective custody for the prison's most infamous criminals. Sirhan Sirhan, Robert F. Kennedy's assassin, is also housed there. 
Rothenberg only received three months of counseling while incarcerated to help him better cope with stress. Because he pled guilty and refused his attorney's suggestion to plead insanity, there is no record of Rothenberg receiving psychological testing or even undergoing a psychiatric evaluation after his arrest. Psychologists and experts in child murder agree that it is difficult to come up with common denominators among parents who murder or attempt to murder their children. While some point to a variety of factors that may be at play, including low self-esteem, social isolation, neglect or abuse as a child, and, at the time of the crime, often feeling a lack of control over their own life. They also point to other parents who have those issues, and much worse, who never consider harming their children. Deanne Tilton, director of the Interagency Council on Child Abuse and Neglect in Los Angeles, said, Children are the one easy target for the person who feels helpless in order to achieve a sense of control, so it is not uncommon for a child to be hurt as a result of a marital dispute. Another thing to remember, she adds, is that some people are just evil, and I don't know what causes that, and you can wear yourself out trying to analyze that. There is no answer. Charles Rothenberg was sentenced under a California guideline that at that time allowed prisoners one day off of their sentence for every day they worked or participated in an education program. He was released in early 1990 after only six and a half years in prison. Even Rothenberg admitted that his punishment didn't fit the crime. Do I deserve to be set free? He wrote to the Los Angeles Times. No, it's an unforgivable act. Due to public outrage at his release, prison officials had to keep his whereabouts after his release secret. They were, however, required to notify Marie and David. David's family took several security measures before Rothenberg was released to make sure he could not come in contact with him. The only assurance they were given by prison officials was that Rothenberg could not live within 25 miles of their residence. In 1996, Rothenberg was arrested once again for attempted murder. He was living in Northern California and working as a waiter when he got into an altercation with a 47-year-old man that often frequented the restaurant. The victim said he chased him down a hallway at an Oakland motel, shooting him once in the head. The victim survived. Rothenberg, who is now living under the alias Charles Boca, was charged with attempted murder and being a felon in possession of a firearm. While he was awaiting trial, David decided he finally wanted to confront his father. David, 19 years old then, had not seen his father for 13 years. David traveled to Oakland's North County Jail to have a 30-minute meeting with Rothenberg. I really want to confront him, David said before the visit. I need to close a chapter in my life. If I don't, I feel it's holding me back. The meeting was unsupervised, but Rothenberg and David were separated by a protective glass. Rothenberg had agreed to the meeting, he said, because he'd wanted to see his son for 13 years, and he wanted to take full responsibility for what he'd done and tell David that he loved him. Reportedly, after his father told him he loved him, David responded, No, no you don't. You're no father. Real fathers don't hurt their children the way you hurt me. It was the last time he'd see or speak to him. Charles Rothenberg was tried for attempted murder for the shooting. If he'd been found guilty, he could have received 37 years in prison. However, he was acquitted, in large part because the witness, having been shot in the temple, could not recall the details of the crime. He was released. In 2001, Rothenberg was arrested on burglary and fraud charges in San Francisco. 
He was also the primary suspect in an arson fire. He was now 61 years old and had legally changed his name to Charlie Charles. On June 11th of 2001, a fire broke out in the apartment building where he was living. Flammable liquid had been poured and a fire started around the door of an apartment where two young women lived. They escaped the fire unhurt. While investigating the arson, police learned of a burglary and other crimes at the same building. Rothenberg was questioned and he admitted to several crimes, including possession of a loaded handgun. As a convicted felon, he was prohibited from owning a firearm. He was also booked on suspicion of burglary, several counts of forgery, and several counts of the fraudulent use of a credit card. The district attorney's office now wanted to charge him under the three strikes law, which would make him eligible for a life sentence. Their criteria was that he'd committed both attempted murder and arson in the 1983 attack on David. Now, with this arrest, he had committed his third strike. However, the judge disagreed. In her ruling, she said that the arson and the attempted murder could be charged as only one strike since they were two parts of one crime, the attempted murder. Arson was just the vehicle for that crime, she stated. He received a sentence of seven years, four months. Rothenberg was scheduled to be paroled in 2007, but San Francisco District Attorney Kamala Harris immediately appealed the judge's decision. In 2007, she was successful in her appeal. The state appeals court ruled that the Superior Court judge was wrong when she ruled in 2005 that Rothenberg could not be charged with the third strike. They ruled that the arson and the attempted murder charges were in fact two strikes and that the two convictions for weapons possession, the other charges had been thrown out, could be counted as Rothenberg's third strike. He was resentenced to 25 years to life. At the same time, the state attorney general was also pursuing a case against him for threatening the prosecutor on the weapons case. Rothenberg had reportedly used the jail telephone three times in 2005 to make threats against the prosecutor, Cheryl Matthews. When he handed down his potential life sentence, the judge told the 66-year-old Rothenberg that he was, quote, the kind of individual for whom the three strikes law was passed. David Rothenberg has since changed his name and is simply known as Dave. Today, he is 40 years old and an artist living and working in Las Vegas. A year after the tragedy, he was visited by pop superstar Michael Jackson. Jackson offered to pay all of David's medical expenses, but his offer was declined since Marie's insurance was covering the hospital bills. Instead, Michael Jackson became a lifelong friend to Dave and the person that David says most encouraged him to become an artist. David was interviewed on the Larry King show about his friend Michael Jackson after he died in 2009. He heard about me and he had contacted me and wanted to meet me. How old were you at the time? I was about seven years old at the time. And were you in the hospital? I was not in the hospital at the time. I was, I was in interim back and forth from surgery. And what did he do for you? Well, basically, he befriended me. He took me into his life, which is very rare for Michael to do, but he opened up his arms to me and accepted me as a very good friend of his. And throughout the years, he never let me go. The visit to his Encino house was very impromptu, and it was kept a secret by my mother. My mother surprised me one day and brought me up to Neverland. And I entered an arcade, and at the time, my, my favorite video game was Pole Position. And I was playing Pole Position, and I 
I felt a little tap on my shoulder, and I turned around, and there was Michael. At that moment, we, we embraced, and that embrace never ended throughout our whole entire friendship. Dave attended Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. He studied film at first, but then switched to visual arts. He has had several collaborations with other artists, most recently with Las Vegas artist Charity Hopper. They recently exhibited a collection of pop art portraits of whimsical imagined characters. Dave is now a full-time artist and sells his work to private collectors. His art can be seen at the Camelot Arts Gallery in the Forum Shops at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. We now have merchandise. If you'd like to get a t-shirt, hoodie, or any other number of items with the Once Upon a Crime logo, you can find them at cafepress.com slash onceuponacrime. Links can also be found on the Facebook page. Products are available to be shipped internationally as well as in the U.S. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time... Be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.